0: Things Not Seen is made possible in part through the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's patreo dot com notseenradio. Thank you. From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and Sandberg Media LLC, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. Our guest is scholar and author S. Brent Plate. Brent Plate is the founding editor of the journal Material Religion and is a frequent lecturer at conferences across the country on the subject of the physical and material artifacts of religious practices. Stay tuned. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is S. Brent Plate, who teaches religious studies at Hamilton College in upstate New York. Professor Plate's teachings and writings explore relations between sensual life and spiritual life. He's authored and edited eleven books and writes regularly for the Huffington Post, Religion Dispatches, and other sites. He is co-founder and managing editor of Material Religion, the journal of objects, art, and belief and is co-founder and president of SCRIPT, which is short for the Society for Comparative Research in Iconic and Performative Texts. He's on the board of the Interfaith Coalition of Greater Utica, New York, and his most recent book is A History of Religion in Five and a Half Objects, Bringing the Spiritual to Its Senses. S. Brent Plate, welcome to Things Not Seen.
1: Thanks, David. It's great great to be here on the radio with you today.
0: I've asked you to start out by reading a short excerpt from the introduction to your book, A History of Religion in Five-and-A-Half Objects, as a way of getting us into the discussion of sensual religion.
1: Yes, I'd be happy to. This is, uh, comes from the uh, introductory chapter that I label uh, one half, and I think we'll get into what the, what the half is maybe a little bit later. So here's what I uh, say there in kind of a summarizing paragraph. There is no thinking without first sensing, no minds without their entanglement in bodies, no intellectual religion without felt religion, as it has lived in streets and homes, temples and theaters. Long before intellectual systematic thoughts arise in the cognitive workings of humans, long before abstract ideas emerge about deities who create and destroy, the senses are active, actively receiving and processing information about the world and making meaning of it. Religion, being a prime human activity throughout history, is rooted in the body and in its sensual relations with the world. It always has been and always will be. We make sense out of the senses. This is the first true thing we can say about religion because it is also the first true thing we can say about being human. We are sentient beings, and religion is sensual.
0: Thank you. That was S. Brent Plate reading from his new book, A History of Religion in Five-and-A-Half Objects. And I'd really like to sort of dive right in at that point, the notion that religion is an embodied activity, a sensuous activity. In one sense, that seems like that would be uh, the most obvious thing in the world, and yet you, you have filled an entire book with, with wonderful uh, reminders of that. And it seems as if, at least here in the West, we've forgotten in some way that that religion is an embodied experience. And so I'd like to start out by asking, what made us forget that? Where where did we lose the knowledge that, that bodies and the senses are important to our religious experience?
1: Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. And um, I think we can point to a few different places. Certainly one is... Um, you know, our education system. I, I see this, I have a nine-year-old and a seven-year-old, and I've watched them grow up and watch them move from the ways they play in classrooms, you know, from preschool on up, and this sort of movement from sort of playing, very tactile playing, very, you know, sensual playing, and then eventually uh, you begin to learn and, you know, they read books, and there's a big pictures and small text, and uh, older you get, the smaller the pictures get and the larger the text get. So that we're just sort of reading these, you know, invisible kinds of words and uh, going straight to our brain and we're supposed to sit still in our seats and, and read and look at words. So there's something in our education system that, that is, runs off the idea that to grow up means we have to forget about the senses and start just thinking with the intellect and just have an intellectual dimension, so grown up people think about things and and uh, children just play with things um and and the grown up people who think about things they you know they think about things literally, but they just think in general so I mean that sort of things in the two two senses of it it sort of becomes even things becomes a metaphor um but then I think it's also certainly certain, something of the predominance of, uh, of Protestant culture um, in, the, in the modern West that sort of shaped things. Uh, you know, this is sort of a different story, I think, with, uh, with Catholicism in the West. There's much more attention to, uh, to liturgy and ritual and the senses there. But uh, even there, it's, it's very much taught, you know, well, this is important, but it's not as important as what we think about um, so I, I wanted to kind of recover some of that, recover some of the ways that we do religion, that we, we enact religion, and, uh, and through the senses as well. So I think there's a few things, you know, it's, it's something about Protestantism, something about our education system, in, in, in short, that, that makes us forget about the senses. Or, or, or even if we don't forget about it, it tells us, well, that's that's fine, but it's just not as important. You know, here's the serious stuff. The serious stuff is what we think about. The serious stuff is, is not what we
0: uh, the the senses that we engage. Well, I, I appreciate you raising these issues, particularly the, the notion of the the influence of the Protestant Reformation on this division of kind of the thinking and the feeling. Now I'm speaking as a as a Roman Catholic and when when I teach my children and and I have children that are younger than you I have a 4-year-old and a 2-year-old but when I teach them about the faith a lot of that instruction involves walking up to the altar it involves sort of showing them the 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 way in which at the altar rail there are there are stylized versions of grapes and bread that are sort of woven in and we talk about what it's like to uh to to be moving through the space and you know these are young children but those very tactile visual and sensual images really kind of help me to communicate to my children what this faith idea is all about these invisible things become more graspable literally when when you can point to them and that it seems as if in in the the movement from catholic culture to Pro- protestant culture historically there was a very skeptical um suspicion of the sensual matters and i'm i'm thinking now about what it's like to talk about a politics of the sensual uh in what way is is the sensual a uh, uh, political act and re- reinvigorating the sensual is in some way uh making a political stand what what do you think about that
1: i i think that's a great great idea sort of um i i there is something uh, i think political um, is certainly involved with it and it's um i think uh the the book that i that I wrote the history of religion five and a half objects was you know and really in many ways trying to um make a make an argument uh as 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 one reviewer and uh said uh you might even call it a manifesto and I sort of I hadn't thought of it as a manifesto but i but I do think there is something uh of that in the book itself that i that I like um and, and that there is, there is something sort of a, a challenge to sort of uh, to, to allow us to be okay with, you know, having the knickknacks on our shelf and not sort of relegating those to some sort of secondary status, but saying, yes, this is, you know, this is really part of these experiences that I've had, you know, maybe directly religious, maybe sort of only tangentially religious. But, you know, we, we collect rocks at the seashore and we collect different things in different places and we bring them home with us and put them on our shelves and uh but but again so we 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 all do this so the the act is to try to sort of create a space um for it to be okay for us to to actually say yeah this is actually important and these the grape designs uh you know woven into the the the, the imagery in the church uh, that you were talking about with your children you know that that's not just Something to be overlooked that that's you know very basic for the the, the tradition itself that um, these kinds of visual images and these and the way they touch on other other senses as well that's really uh, a key part of it and um, it's not just scaffolding for some verbal account of things later but it's it's actually it it underpins everything and and then it's very very central you know actually a central dimension of certainly in the Christian tradition it, at least traditionally it you know everything leads up to the uh, to the Eucharist to the communion that um, it's the, the, the central activity is is eating and drinking um, and you know I think that's that's significant um, in that as, as it is for so many other traditions so for it, it allows certainly a way to get into it with uh, with with children um, but again it's you know, we need to kind of remind ourselves. the when we grow up and we we stop looking at the at the images, and uh, we we think we've moved on, and you know we're sort of parsing these theological texts later. And uh, we need to you know remember that we the, the senses are still there, and that these are still key dimensions to these uh, traditions as well. So yeah, I think there I think there is um, you know a way for political activity to happen, and certainly social activity sort of. For, for, for churches and, as well as synagogues and mosques and temples to be able to, um, you know, sort of come together and, you know, sort of ultimately interested in interfaith uh, connections as well and sort of thinking about how, how bread gets shared among different traditions and how um, different, di- different senses are used in the different traditions.
0: This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest is scholar and author S. Brent Plate. Brent Plate is the founding editor of the journal Material Religion and is a frequent lecturer at conferences across the country on the subject of the physical and material artifacts of religious practices. Plate is also currently the president of Script, the society for comparative research in iconic and performative texts. His new book is A History of Religion in Five and a Half Objects, Bringing the Spiritual to Its Senses. You can find out more about Brent Plate's work and his new book at our website. ThingsNotSeenRadio.com We'll be back in a moment. Things Not Seen is brought to you in part by Liturgical Press. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality. They've evolved to serve the changing needs of the Christian church and they produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all leaders looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we offer a rich conversation about culture and faith. Our guest is scholar and author S. Brent Plate. Brent Plate is the founding editor of the journal Material Religion and is a frequent lecturer at conferences across the country on the subject of the physical and material artifacts of religious practices. Plate is also currently the president of SCRIPT, the Society for Comparative Research in Iconic and Performative Texts. His new book is A History of Religion in Five and a Half Objects, Bringing the Spiritual to Its Senses. You can find out more about Brent Plate's work and his new book at our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. Well, you've mentioned just now uh, synagogues and mosques in addition to churches and and Hindu temples, and that struck me uh, in thinking about these questions of sensuality, we're very used to thinking about an architectural location, a geography, a place to take our bodies when we worship. and that that seems to be true across a number of major religious traditions. And yet, when you start to talk about these other sensual activities, there, there really seems to be a, a division point between something like architecture and the physical huge object of a church or a mosque or an ashram, and then something smaller like you mentioned picking up stones at the, the seaside. And I'm wondering what you think about those kind of divisions, why it is that in Western culture particularly uh, we've, we've allowed ourselves to uh, interact with no problem with these sort of big objects, uh but there has often been a, a suspicion of these smaller objects, of the you know, we, we take our bodies somewhere but then we are expected with those bodies to simply be uh spiritual, which is an invisible activity, or mental, you know, giving mental assent to a to a particular dogma or doctrine.
1: Yeah, I think that's I think that's true. I think there is a lot of that. Um I'm you know, I'm trying to sort with my work I'm trying to suggest there's of course more of a continuity between those two things. That, you know, the very fact that we do pick up these, you know, shells and stones on the seashore is why religion has used these things as well, why why stones are so important for, for religious traditions. And it's because there's something you know, endemic to the human body, something that, something that we, we need to touch and we need to feel and we need to see these things. Um, and so, you know, religion, in a sense, is, is, the, uh, is the, the human body writ large um, and uh, incorporates these. So I think there's a continuity between this very personal and then this sort of uh, grander scale. Um, I think one thing, certainly in a history of uh, well Christianity as well as uh, other traditions, I think it's fair to say as well, it's always an issue of authority, and um, certainly the church has uh, has cracked down uh, in many play, many times and ways when uh, this kind of individual piety has has risen up and people have you know tried to find you know the, the iconoclastic controversies with christianity and um, and and many others besides where and the, the protestant reformers that you mentioned earlier this idea that um you know in order to have uh, authority it has to be you know justified sanctified you know sort of put in place by some sort of authority figures and so the personal kinds of effects are downplayed and uh, you know it's it's we can't we can't be having people accessing the sacred outside of our confined areas. So I think you know one of the histories of, of religions is to is a question of authority, of course, but but looking rethinking those authorities as as redirecting the senses. It's 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 always sort of an authority of the senses, and when people get too much into the smells or the tastes or the sounds or the, or the sights, the church comes along and create some sort of theological doctrine about it and sort of you know, wants to rope it in uh, in various ways. And the earliest Christians um, were, you know, trying to distinguish themselves from the, from the Jews and the pagans, and um, they, they clearly used incense in many places, which uh, got the various theologians to sort of argue against the use of incense. And, uh, we sort of see this through the history of Christianity, this theologians arguing against some sensual practice. Um, but of course, it's always after the practices have always have been going on. And in other words, Christians you know, use images and use incense. Uh, and then someone has to come down and crack, crack down on it later and sort of suggest, well, why this is or isn't okay, or in what context. You know, it's usually about placing it within a proper context. Um, so the issue, I, th- you know, I think, is, is one of authority, Uh, Ultimately, that divides the kind of personal from the the social connections there.
0: Well, one of the things that really struck me while reading the book was this chapter that you wrote on incense. And just a moment ago, you mentioned, you know, the the theologians speaking against uh, practices like the burning of incense. But you you talk in that chapter about the time that it takes to burn something, and you use this wonderful image from Sherlock Holmes uh, talking about a three-pipe problem. And that got me thinking about the way in which we oftentimes neglect time in modern society. And let me give you an example of what I mean. I have a difficulty when I'm traveling across a large city. Like I used to live in Atlanta, I now live in Chicago. I had a bad habit of leaving when I should be arriving somewhere, and the the reason why was because it was very difficult for me to think about the time that it took to actually travel to a place. I I, I was wanting in some bodily way to have the the travel be negligible, to have it be instantaneous. But I think that that's part of a larger problem in our society. We want things to be instantaneous. We want things to be uh, immediate in terms of, of their their availability to us. But what you raised in this chapter was the notion that things take time. And certain activities like the burning of incense or the smoking of a pipe draws us back into the flow of time. And I, I wonder if you'd be willing to sort of speak a little bit about the impact of the flow of time on religious practice and why we maybe have, have gotten away from that oftentimes in our in our current uh, society.
1: I, I think that's uh, definitely definitely correct. Certainly it's something of our contemporary society where, we're, where everything's fast and, and, and fast-paced and instantaneous of course, uh, communications with the internet and everything that uh, allows us to have everything here and now. You know, I can, I can find answers. My, my daughters already know that if they want an answer to something, they don't ponder it. All they have to do is push a little button on a little object, and uh, this, this little Siri voice comes on and tells them the answer, uh, whether it's how many, how many hairs are on a dog's head to uh, you know, some crazy thing they've just thought up. And Siri gives them an answer, you know, within, within seconds. Um, so there's definitely definitely something to the media and how it shaped our uh, society um, you know for, for good or for ill uh, certainly some things I couldn't live without but um, yes we, we, we do speed up too much and and so what, what I've kind of tried to do I wanted to, I've done a lot of work in media with with film and television and things but I wanted to do kind of a, a media unplugged um, and so these these Stones and incense and crosses these are these are media they're they're social media and people use them in social ways and they 've been that way for you know for thousands of years um, so hopefully it's a it's a chance to slow down a little bit um, and i think I, I think you know certainly we need to we need to slow down we need to have times to uh, to slow down and to you know figure out how how long it takes to drive uh, from one place to the other and um, have a sense of uh, the, the the journey in between, you know, the, the sense that um, we're not just always at a place, but, but we're traveling, and that travel becomes uh, an important, an important uh, thing. I just drove across country uh, with my dog. I was teaching out in Colorado, and um, I drove drove from upstate New York to Boulder, Colorado, and then drove back later, and it was just sort of the first time i've done that in in number of years and uh just just by myself on the road and just just driving along straight roads and uh you know really kind of anxious uh, at one hand but then trying to just make it and i'm not sure it's possible to meditate while you're uh, while you're driving but uh, nonetheless trying to get a sense of just just enjoying the time and watching the watching the corn fields and the wheat fields kind of pass by um so I think there's, uh, you know, hopefully some sort of recovery, and certainly there's plenty of people writing about these kinds of things, and, and actually several of them I, I, you know, referred to people like Annie, Annie Dillard and others, uh, especially poets, who, who cause us to stop and think and look and sense and feel um, for, for longer periods of time. So I think the I think the poets are really important. Uh, I think we. Poetry is not going away. It, it may be marginalized, may be marginalized for a long time, but it's certainly not going away because uh, I think the poets are there to remind us to slow down. And, um, and I, think, I think religious, you know, not just the uh, religious traditions themselves, but the, but the academic study of religion uh, needs to kind of understand this, that uh, understand the poetry of it all, that uh, religion, is, religion is poetic and um you know it doesn't mean it's not all kinds of other things as well, but uh, it's it's poetic and to to get religion means you have to slow down sometimes and I think to do good scholarly work, we have to slow down, but uh, also to be good practitioners uh, we have to we have to slow down and let the incense burn let the um let the drums you know beat, let them go on, and uh, just sit and look at things for a while so there's a uh, I guess an important part of, 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 of getting religion is, is slowing down to, to get religion. And, uh, and again, the poet's are really, really crucial in this uh, enterprise.
0: This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest is scholar and author S. Brent Plate. Brent Plate is the founding editor of the journal Material Religion. And is a frequent lecturer at conferences across the country on the subject of the physical and material artifacts of religious practices. Plate is also currently the president of SCRIPT, the Society for Comparative Research in Iconic and Performative Texts. His new book is *A History of Religion in Five and a Half Objects*, bringing the spiritual to its senses. You can find out more about Brent Plate's work and his new book at our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. We'll be back in a moment. Hello, listeners. I just wanted to let you know about a new podcast that I'm launching with Emily Grassley from the Field Museum. It's called Divides Aside, and it's science and faith in conversation. This podcast is about laying down differences and finding new ways to understand each other. In these deeply personal conversations, me and Emily talk about our ways of seeing the world and why they they so often come into conflict and why we so often disagree. But as the episodes unfold, suspicion gives way to a growing friendship. Listeners get a chance to glimpse the difficulties and rewards that come when we put our Divides Aside. You can listen to it on iTunes. You can follow us on Twitter at DividesAside and on Facebook.com, also at DividesAside. Please do listen in. We'd love to get your feedback. We'd love to learn how to do this better. And we'd love to share this conversation with you. Thank you. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we offer a rich conversation about culture and faith. Our guest is scholar and author S. Brent Plate. Brent Plate is the founding editor of the journal Material Religion and is a frequent lecturer at conferences across the country on the subject of the physical and material artifacts of religious practices. Plate is also currently the president of Script, the Society for the Comparative Research of Iconic and Performative Texts. His new book is A History of Religion in Five and a Half Objects, Bringing the Spiritual to Its Senses. You can find out more about Brent Plate's work and his new book at our website, ThingsNotSeenRadio.com. Well, one of the things that really struck me while reading the book was this chapter that you wrote on incense. But you, you talk in that chapter about the time that it takes to burn something. And you use this wonderful image from Sherlock Holmes uh, talking about a three-pipe problem. And that got me thinking about the way in which we oftentimes neglect time in modern society. We want things to be uh, immediate in terms of, of their their availability to us. But what you raised in this chapter was the notion that things take time. And certain activities like the burning of incense or the smoking of a pipe Draws us back into the flow of time, and I, I wonder if you'd be willing to sort of speak a little bit about the impact of the flow of time on religious practice and why we maybe have have gotten away from that oftentimes in our, in our current uh, society.
1: I I think that's uh, definitely definitely correct. Certainly, it's something of our contemporary society where, where everything's fast and and, and fast paced and instantaneous. Of course, uh, communications with the internet. And- so what what I've kind of tried to do I wanted to I've done a lot of work in media with, with film and television and things but I wanted to do kind of a, a media unplugged um, and so these these stones and incense and crosses these are these are media they're they're social media and people use them in social ways and they've been that way for you know for thousands of years um, so hopefully it's a, it's a chance to slow down a little bit.
0: Well, when I hear you talk about slowing down, when I hear you mention this sort of uh, disengagement from certain mediated activities, the thing that comes to mind is not necessarily a physical or a sensual thing, but a liturgical thing, and, and that's the, the Christian concept and the Jewish concept of, of Sabbath. Uh, we could also find you know something uh, similar to that in maybe Ramadan in the Muslim tradition. And I'm, I'm wondering, when we talk about physical objects, and we talk about physical objects as part of our experience of religion and religious practice, we're also we must be talking about liturgy. We must be talking about the way in which time is structured and physical space is structured. And so as as you're as you're working on these things, not just in your in your recent book, A History of Religion in Five and a Half Objects, but in, in your many lectures, but and also in your journal work with material religion when we when we think about these objects these these isolated things paint them for us in a in that larger landscape how do objects relate to time how do they relate to space how do they draw us back into these these bigger sort of uh these bigger sort of activities
1: hmm. yeah i think there's a yeah a number of number of ways that that works and and sometimes there sometimes i think the objects are 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 uh, mediums, um so a, a stone that we found on a beach and we've you know I've got sitting on my desk here right now and I can look at that and kind of be trans you know space collapses and, uh, and time collapses and I'm transported back to the time when I was hiking and I, I found that stone and think about who I was with and um, so it, it these objects are sort of uh, you know, much like the internet, you know, with a couple clicks, it takes you, you know, sends you around the world to some link around the world, and uh, you're sitting there looking at it. Um, I think stones do the same kind of thing, you know, with one one glance at that stone, if we've got this meaning connected with it, it, it takes us around the world and across time in a very, very quick um, uh, kind of way, which then, of course, we can sit and and think about for a while, and sort of pause and uh, reflect on a bit, um, but I think they're they're sort of instrumental these these objects in general for for liturgy and for ritual uh, in general to to divide up time and space in very particular kinds of ways that uh, allow us to make make sense of time and space right it becomes it becomes graspable. Um, remember this experience when I it was in Fort Worth, Texas, in the Modern Museum of Fort Worth, Texas, just a, a fantastic uh, space designed uh, by the arch- Japanese architect Tadao Andel and um, he, um, just this grand entrance where you walk through these glass doors, and there's this huge uh, roof on it, and just this this massive space inside. And my, I'd take my students there, and if they'd never been there, they'd go inside and look up and go you know just be amazed and say wow this is incredible and they were you know they were impressed by the space or something about the sheer volume of it um and so we sat and talked about it for a while and of course they when they got out of their cars in the parking lot and looked up at the sky they didn't say oh wow look at how big the sky is you know it's it's that it in other words space needs to be bounded for us to sort of get it you know in some ways we we, it's got to have some sort of limits to us for us to be able to grasp it and then the same thing with time it's just you know infinity is you know an impossible sort of concept we've got to be able to put it in small ways in order to to grasp it and um so we we divide divide up history and uh, divide up time and space in various ways so I think these objects, both the sort of built environments but then the objects that we use within them, they help us to um, to grasp these you know time and space, these very abstract ideas, but, but we can only grasp them through um, their, the ways they 're cut up they 're chopped up and sort of presented to us uh, through you know various cultural productions. So I think objects are, are a key kind of way that allow us access to, to time and space. They um, maybe transport us across time and space or they or they make us more firmly in the here and now.
0: Once you have once you have an object, a train that has to move from place to place on a certain schedule It becomes important to have that schedule regularized. And I'm thinking about just the ways in which, just what you were saying, but this notion of of time that, you know, in, in whether we're talking about Chicago or Atlanta or Beijing or Berlin, we've got a sense of what time it must be in those places by knowing what time it is where we are. All of that is such a recent invention, of our culture. And before that we had all these other local ways of measuring time. You mentioned the, the the prayer cries from the minaret or or we mentioned the the movement of the sun through the through the heavens. All of these things are are constructed ways of measuring time. And then we create this sort of universal structure for measuring time. And then somebody like me grows up and believes that time has always been measured this way. So in what ways might we say that we have a, a sort of nearsightedness about these sorts of objects and constructions? What, in what ways do do objects free us or push us to think beyond the sort of limitations that we've inherited in our culture?
1: Mm, yeah, I think that's a, that's a good, good, good question. I, and I, I, I guess I do believe there there is the possibility, you know, for for objects to 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 help us, you know, and and part of the part of what I've been trying to sort of think about and, and really being propelled to think about. It, it wasn't sort of my first thought, but um, I mean, when I, when I first started looking at this uh, research, I was thinking, oh, it's the human body that then goes out and engages these things in the world. But as I sort of got into it, I realized that these things were engaging the human body, that it sort of went the other way around and that, you know, we sort of get stopped in our tracks from time to time by certain images and smells and, and sounds and touches and, you know, these, these objects themselves have a power to them. Um, so I do, I do think they have this, you know, potential, sort of a renewed kind of paying attention. It, it, it requires us to pay a different kind of attention to them. Um, but I, I do think they have this uh, opportunity to, to link us back, again, to that to, to nature itself, to think about how nature Operates, and um, you know, to think about stones and and there's sort of the sense of permanence, like stone has been here for a very long time, and yet it's actually, of course, quite different than it was. Uh, it, it's changing over time. Um, the the uh, uh, French poet uh, Pange um, wrote this poem about the pebble, uh, back in the I think it was in the 1920s. And he sort of talks about how, you know, these rocks were originally these these great parts of Earth's crust, and they sort of broke up into smaller and smaller pieces, and they become boulders and sort of stones and pebbles, and eventually they turn into sand. And just this long-term sort of meditation on the the, the changes of uh, of a rock over time. These seemingly solid substances, nonetheless, change. Um, So, you know, there's some sense that, you know, contemplation of and thinking about longevity sort of puts us back in touch with with time puts us back in touch with uh, it, t- time in a long sense of time right in sense of sort of not just a human scale but on a, a more geological scale which is a much different thing um, so hopefully you know I, the objects can can get us outside of ourselves too right our, our kind of our, our myopic worlds where I, I check my watch or my phone to sort of see what time it is and when am I on to the next thing and you know we so many of us live our live our lives with these uh, little calendars, and it's like, oh, okay, it's two o'clock. I need to be here. It's three o'clock. I need to be here. And uh, these little uh, electronic devices telling us how to uh, go about it. Um, but I, you know, again, I think thinking back to the the, the traditions, and um, you know, I'm, I'm become a real big fan of the of church bells and the calls to prayer. Um, you know, just not just because they're beautiful, uh, but because you know, they, they, they link us with something just it's a marking of time, not, not thinking of them as beautiful um, beautiful sounds, but of a of, uh, of really profound linking to a sense of time and time passing.
0: This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest is scholar and author S. Brent Plate. Brent Plate is the founding editor of the journal Material Religion. You can find out more about Brent Plate's work and his new book at our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. We'll be back in a moment. Earlier in the program we talked about advertising, but there are ways to support Things Not Seen even if you don't have anything to sell. I just wanted to take a moment and give a quick shout-out and thank you to our Patreon supporters. Now, if you don't know what this platform is, it's a way for you to regularly give contributions that support our work every time that we release a new episode. It costs you just a little bit, like maybe the cost of a latte a month, maybe a dollar an episode, but it adds up because it aggregates with all the other people and ends up being a nice sum for us. Many of you have stepped up. We've only been doing this for a few weeks, but already the numbers are there, and I appreciate it so much. If you'd like to become a Patreon supporter, you can do it very easily. Just go to patreon.com. That's spelled P-A-T-R-E-O-N, patreon.com slash notseenradio. Thank you always for listening, and thank you especially for your support. We really do appreciate it. If you're just joining us, our guest is S. Brent Plate, the founding editor of the journal Material Religion, and the author of the new book, A History of Religion in Five and a Half Objects, bringing the spiritual to its senses. You've been talking about the your fascination with the flow of time, and that strikes me with uh, strikes me about something that you talked about in your book, and that is we have this notion of the external senses, so uh, seeing, tasting, touching, smelling feeling. But we also have internal senses. We have the sense that says, I'm hungry now. We have the sense that says, I'm tired now. We have the sense that says, I'm excited now. I'm fearful now. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about the the sort of interaction between the external and the internal senses of time flow or the external and the, and the internal senses that you talk about in the book.
1: This is how religions have operated is by, you know, literally they train our senses, you know, these external cues that shift and, and alter uh, the internal structures of our bodies um, you know we're not we're not quite as uh, in control as, as we kind of uh, modernists uh, think we are individuals who kind of control the world and you know we create our own sense of reality um, we're, we're much more shaped by these these external things and so they, they put us in a, in a frame uh, to be you know oftentimes receptive you know to be to the, the smells prepare us for meditation, or they prepare us for prayer, um, or the, the the images prepare us for uh, you know, certain acts of, of piety along the way. And I think the um, um, so I think there, there again there's a back and forth that's going, ebbing uh, and flowing between these things and, and ourselves. And so our our internal clocks are get regulated um, by these things. We become, you know, it's it's the proverbial pavlov's dogs uh you hear the hear the sound of the bell and and begin to salivate and uh religious traditions do that and and, and it's you know on one hand you can we can be cynical and say well that's manipulative and uh, on the other hand we can you know realize it's that's the way life is <laughs> it's all manipulative as a parent i'm manipulating my children as uh you know any everywhere you go in society we're being uh, manipulated certainly our late capitalism of uh, you know advertisements is, is all about that and, and has run with that in many great ways um, and not so great ways. But uh, so we're 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 kind of trained externally to uh, to to respond. We we salivate at the the sound of the bell, or you know maybe in more religious terms, we uh, you know begin to slow down and prepare ourselves for uh, for worship at the sound of the bell. Um, similar similar kind of thing so we we are like pavlov's dogs in that sense
0: well all through this conversation we've been talking about the varieties of sensory experience and you you do raise in the book that our five our classification of five senses is is, is somewhat arbitrary but let's take that classification just for the purposes of this ne- this next question as a given if we look at those five do you have a favorite sense of those five <laughs>
1: Well, as, as someone who sort of did a lot of work in graduate school in art history and media studies and then, and then did a lot of work in visual culture, my uh, I come from this visual background, but um, my I've really been trying to unlearn all that uh, lately and uh, just trying to, you know, Pay attention to the other senses a lot more and and downplay the the, the vision. Um, so I think there's so much there's such a rich uh, rich world out there if we uh, get get away from vision as this primary kind of sense. Um, so I, I've been really intrigued with with smell uh, lately and how how smell operates in our body and uh, there's these you know fascinating. I mentioned in the book briefly these um, these. Companies, these uh, advertising companies that are, you know, looking at smells and and they create specific scents for specific companies. You know, and you see it at uh, Abercrombie and Fitch and uh, you know many others besides Victoria's Secret and you know so even so even electronics companies are getting into the game and they're trying to create certain you know because electronics don't necessarily smell good. You walk into Best Buy and you. Smelling a you know a Sony um, DVD player or something like that and there's not a good smell so Sony's actually been trying to think about how to associate a scent with their products and uh, many other companies besides and I think it, it it's such a I think it's fascinating because it's such a subtle
0: um,
1: kind of thing you know we've we've so overrun the visual and even the audio you know I think in our in our culture with our our televisions and and internet's and um, you know, everything sort of screaming at us and flashing bright lights that I think we've sort of reached, we've really reached a limit of what we can do visually. Um, I mean, it doesn't mean to stop doing that, but, um, you know, it's just sort of no longer as as fascinating uh, anymore. But I I think what we're going to find is that that smell uh, in particular is going to become a new sort of mode, kind of rediscovering a sense of smell. And uh, I'm real fascinated with that, you know, and it's, connections just uh, biologically with uh, certain ancient uh, dimensions of our brain and uh, the, uh, the ways that smells go sort of directly into the limbic system and kind of trigger up, trigger memories from long past, of course, the famous uh, Marcel Proust's um, uh, smell of the, the Madeleine cookie and uh, things like that that... Um, we point to, and you know, many of us have had those experiences. I smelled that, and it reminded me of this certain place. So I think, as long as, I, I mean, Madison Avenue, the the advertising is going to certainly take over and uh, rearrange our sense of smell here. And I think in the next 10 years, um, but I think it's also, you know, uh, a chance for religious traditions to kind of maybe rediscover smell, you know, and how how do we use smell in the uh, In the chapels and the uh, mosques and the cathedrals, you know, this has been done for many years. And of course, there's the standard approach of of sort of swinging a particular blend of incense for it. Um, But we might get creative uh, with smell. We might start getting creative with different worship services and different uses of smell. Um, And as I've as I've presented on the book at a few places, I've had uh, various uh, Presbyterian and other Protestant pastors in the audience, and they, they sort of think, oh, I, we've got to figure out how to use these objects in our, in our worship services, you know, and kind of remind them of the uh, Protestant Reformation, you know, well, here's, here's why you didn't use these objects, and, um, and, and now they're sort of finding, gosh, I think we missed something when we got rid of all these uh, rituals and uh, all, these, uh, all these sensual things, you know, we said they were bad, and now, now it seems like the Protestants are sort of wanting to rediscover all that. And, realizing they, there was something up missed along the way. So I think, I think uh, I'm think i kind of a big fan of smell. I think smell might uh, produce some really interesting results in the next in the, in the years to come, both um, sort of as a culture as a whole, but I think there's also a lot of potential in, in religious traditions as well to pursue smell.
0: Well, S. Brent Plate, thank you very much for being with us today. I really enjoyed our conversation.
1: Thanks, David. Enjoyed it as well.
0: Our guest today has been S. Brent Plate, who teaches religious studies at Hamilton College in upstate New York. Professor Plate's teachings and writings explore the relations between sensual life and spiritual life. He's authored and edited 11 books and writes regularly for the Huffington Post, Religion Dispatches, and for other sites. He's co founder and managing editor of Material Religion, the journal of objects, art, and belief. Co-founder and current president of SCRIPT, which is short for the Society for Comparative Research in Iconic and Performative Texts. And he's a board member of the Interfaith Coalition of Greater Utica, New York. His most recent book is A History of Religion in Five-and-A-Half Objects, Bringing the Spiritual to Its Senses. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the public radio exchange. Today's show was recorded at WBEZ at their Navy Pier Studios overlooking Lake Michigan. WBEZ is not responsible for the content of this program. Additional production for this week took place at the studios of the Chicago Sunday Evening Club here in the Chicago Loop. Our theme music is composed by Gene Keija. Mary Gaffney engineered the show. Kim Tron and David Dalt did the editing. Our staff includes Travis Abels, David J. Dunn, Natasha Alford, and Alexander Badenoch.